Well, uh, I am so glad to be back again with you and uh, just to share with you again from uh, Romans chapter 11. Um, I work with an organization called Chosen People Ministries and our job is to share the gospel with Jewish people. Most Jewish people have no idea that Jesus is their Messiah. Uh, I was raised with the idea that he was our enemy. My mother, having grown up in Germany and experiencing much uh, anti-Semitism as she was growing up, and um, actually f her family, thankfully, uh, driven out in 1934, really just as things were beginning to snowball. Um, my father had read Mein Kampf and uh, realized what Hitler's agenda was. And so uh, with that, our, our family was really saved in many ways from, uh, from all of that darkness. But that darkness is rising again. And uh, so um, uh, our, our work with Chosen People Ministries is to share that, that Jesus is our Messiah. Uh, one of the most difficult things that, that we deal with is the idea that Jesus is our enemy. And uh, when I came to realize that actually he was king of the Jewish people and that Jesus in fact was Jewish well my life it was life from the dead and so I am thankful for Christians like yourselves who pray for the Jewish people pray for our work among the Jewish people and um, and I'm just thankful for that if you'd like to partner with me and and chosen people ministries you can fill out a brochure here and and uh, and and you'll get our newsletter so that you'll be better familiar with, uh, with, with our work. This one is on Passover. I brought some literature with me, books that help you to understand the Jewishness of Christianity. Whether you like it or not, I think I shared this last week, Jesus made you kosher, or last month when I was with you. And uh, so if you fill this out and give it to me, I'll make sure you're on a newsletter and uh, list and you'll receive that each month. And maybe the Lord would move you to give toward reaching the Jewish people with the gospel. We, we very much need it. Well, uh, let me begin in prayer as I go into Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. If you have a Bible, we'll be looking there. And uh, so pray with me. Father, I do thank you for this privilege of breaking your word. I ask that your Holy Spirit oversee all that I say and share and, and what we hear. May it glorify you. May it bless you. May Jesus be seen and lifted up, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, God has given Israel many wonderful promises and blessings, but when the Messiah came, whom they all pointed to, my people refused to believe him. And because of their rejection, God sent the gospel to the Gentiles. We talked about that last time I was with you. But what will he do with the Jews? Will God cast away his people? Will God fail to keep his promises? Sadly, many Christians actually believe that God is through with the Jewish people. In our sermon last time, from the first part of Romans chapter 11, we saw how Paul raised and answered some very important questions. In verse 1 of Romans 11, Paul asked, Has God rejected his people? And then in verse 11, he asked, Have they stumbled so as to fall? In other words, have they fallen in such a way that they're even beyond recovery? Paul strongly and decisively answered both of these questions with absolutely not. Why not? 
Why is it that God has not rejected his people and that they're not beyond recovery? Well, we saw the two of Paul's answers was first because there's a remnant, Jewish people like myself and, and many others that, uh, that I serve and, and share with. I, I was last week in, in New York City. Um, our, we have a congregation there that's without a, a, a leader, and so I, I periodic, once a month I go in and share with that congregation. I grew up in New York, so I enjoy going back there. And so there's a remnant of Jewish people who have come to the faith, and uh, both in Manhattan, especially in Brooklyn, there, there are scores of hundreds of Jewish people actually who have come to faith. And so the first answer is that there's a, a, a remnant of believers. And uh, I also pointed out last time that all of the splendid theology that Paul presented had a very down-to-earth purpose, which was to keep Gentile Christians from becoming conceited that they had replaced Israel. God gives grace to the humble, as Scripture says, but, but um, or God rather, yeah, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And so as believers, both Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, we need to continue to remember that but for the grace of God, we would be cast off. Now today, as we look at this final section of Romans 11, Paul reveals one more reason why God has not rejected the Jewish people in Israel. It's because of this mystery. He writes, all Israel will be saved. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, the meaning of the salvation of Israel is simply the final stage in the sequence of events spoken of in Romans 9 through 11. To see what, uh, that, the, that the Jewish rejection of, of Israel has led to the inclusion of Gentiles, which will lead once again to the Jewish people being included again. Israel will be restored to a place of blessing and privilege as the people of God. But let's see how this unfolds. It's not as, as simple as just simply resting in the fact that all Israel will be saved. Let's see what, what Paul gets to and shows how this unfolds in God's word. Paul begins this last section in, in verse 25 of Romans 11. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He'll turn ungodliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, reaching back to the illustration of the olive tree, which we talked about last, uh, last time, we see that Paul is hopeful that Israel, in fact, will be grafted back into the olive tree, a mystery that was revealed to him. Now, the word mystery, it's a technical term in the scriptures. We find it in a number of places in Paul's letters and refers to a truth that had been hidden but now is revealed in, in the gospel, in, in the writings of Paul, in what God has revealed to him. God has entrusted us with some of the mysteries of God. The place of Israel in God's salvation scheme of things is a mystery meaning that we can't figure it out by the natural human reasoning, but we, but, but, we, but we need God to reveal, in fact, it to us. 
Now this mystery that God has revealed to Paul regarding Israel unfolds with three clauses. First of all, Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Second of all, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And thirdly, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, although we may not be able to answer all the questions surrounding this mystery, there are several general things that are evident. For one, the hardening of the Jewish people is only in part. It's partial. We've already seen how Paul talked of the remnant of Jews who have turned to Jesus, who have come to faith. So the hardening affects only part of Israel. There are Jewish people today who are in fact part of the body of Messiah, body of Christ. A second thing about the hardening has to do with the fact that it's temporary. It'll come to an end when the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Now what Paul means by the full number of Gentiles, well, we don't really know for sure what that means. Are we talking about an exact number or more of a generality? No one but, but God can answer that question. The biggest question about the meaning of this passage is the interpretation of what Paul means by all Israel will be saved. What in the world does that mean? And the debate over this verse has resulted in many options, but three stand out. Some scholars conclude that all Israel refers to the entire church, all spiritual Israel, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. They see the church as Israel. That that Israel is the church. That Israel is, is made up now of the body of Christ. Some scholars conclude that all Israel refers to spiritual Israel. That is, those Jews that have come to faith in Christ. That's spiritual Israel, or all Israel that is saved. And others conclude that all Israel refers to the totality of the Jewish people, including the nation of Israel, the Jews that are scattered, that you come in contact with, your doctors, your lawyers, your friends, that your neighbors you may have, um, all Israel, and, and the nation of Israel. Well, I personally hold to the conviction that all Israel refers to the national salvation at the second coming of Jesus to the earth as outlined in Zechariah chapter 12. Now, many of you may not be familiar with that. It describes a time when all the nations of the world will be gathered against Israel. We're rapidly coming to that day. In, in Zechariah 12.3, we read this. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And so what we see here is a scenario of a united nations force coming against Israel to get rid of the Jewish problem once and for all. But just before Israel is about to be wiped out, we read in, in Zechariah 12, the Lord returns to Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David, we read in verse 10, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, that is, the spirit of grace and prayer, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In one day, 
They will see Jesus. The spirit of grace and prayer will come upon them, just as the spirit of grace and prayer came upon us. When in his grace he opened our eyes and we recognized Jesus for who he was. That's the spirit of grace. For all of us have been saved through grace, and that not even of ourselves. It has been the gift of God. It's not because you're good or you're more righteous. It's God's grace that came upon you. And in one day, God's grace is going to come upon the Jewish people. He's going to open their eyes, and they're going to recognize Jesus, who they are, and they're going to mourn for him and recognize that it was we who pierced him. Now, Paul backs up this prediction of Jews in the future turning to Jesus for salvation by citing Isaiah chapter 59 and verses 20 and 21 where he says, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. And so Paul is citing the Old Testament, talking about how God's covenant with the Jewish people will cause their eyes uh, through their recognition of Jesus to be opened and the spirit of grace coming upon them. Paul most likely identifies this deliverer in his text with Jesus, this deliverer who comes out of Zion, the one that Zechariah is pointing to. And, uh, And so one thing we know for sure, it's our deliverer who takes away our sins. In the next verse, verses 28 through 32 in Romans 11, Paul both provides further evidence for this claim and and, and uh, that all Israel will be saved, and reminds us once again of some of the basic arguments he's been making in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Romans 9 and 11 is that section in which he talks about the Jewish people. It begins with the question, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Well, sometimes we wonder, how do we know nothing will separate us from the love of God? And Paul used the illustration of, look at the Jewish people. If God was going to cast off his promises and his love, well then... Why doesn't he cast off Israel? And that's why Romans 9, 10, and 11 is there, is to assure Christians that it's not he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. And nothing will separate his love. And if you ever doubt that, look at the Jewish people. We're like the burning bush. We're ever on fire, but never consumed. God has a covenant and demonstrates his faithfulness in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin you still see his love for Israel. And so he writes in verses 28 through 32, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they're loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, So they too now have disobeyed, disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you. Do you realize that if all of us Jews had accepted Jesus, we would have kept them to ourselves. We didn't want you. We did everything to avoid you. Do you remember how upset the disciples were when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman? We didn't want Gentiles. But our rejection opened the door for you. And so it resulted in mercy to you, Paul writes, so that they may also receive mercy. For God has imprisoned us all unto disobedience, that he might show mercy unto all. In these verses, the 
they and their refers to Israel, and you and your refers to Gentile Christians. Israel's failure to accept the gospel cut her off from God's salvation, thus making her an enemy of God. Yes, my people are enemies of God right now. That hostility or enmity may be from Israel toward God or, or God toward Israel, and it may be best to understand that actually it's in both directions for our hardness of heart. God has disciplined us. I mean, you talk about the fact that, you know, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I think I shared this last time. Well, he really loves us because he's disciplined us like crazy. Nevertheless, as we've seen, the refusal of Israel to believe in God's hardening of them does not mean that God is done with them. Paul reminds us that God's love for Israel is because of the patriarchs and that God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. He's the ultimate Godfather. He gives us an offer none of us can refuse. God and his love never changes despite the response of his people whom God loves and whom God has called. Israel was called to be priests to the nations. Israel was blessed and given all kinds of gifts of knowledge and, and wisdom and so on, worldly wisdom and worldly knowledge that was to be a benefit to the world. But instead they use it for their own ends. And God will transform them so that they will be his priests and they will be a blessing to the nation. And so God's blessings and rewards, they are conditional, his blessings and rewards, but his love and his call is not. Paul is especially careful to emphasize the equal treatment that both Israel and the Gentiles received. Gentiles had once been disobedient and now have received mercy. Israel's been disobedient. And their disobedience has resulted in Gentiles receiving mercy. But that mercy to Gentiles, through you, will lead mercy to Israel. God expects now you to be a light to us. That equal treatment and equal footing is reinforced by the solemn conclusion in verse 32 of Romans 11 where he says, God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he might show mercy unto all. All of us are saved by his grace. This handing people over to the consequences of our sins reminds us of Paul's work, words back in chapter 1. Do you remember where he said, God has sentenced all people, both Jew and Gentile, to condemnation because of their sins. God does this so it might be clear to reveal that we're all sinners, whose only way of escape is through God's mercy by, again, that spirit of grace coming upon us and opening our eyes and seeing Jesus and recognizing that he died for our sins. God, God's ultimate desire is not condemnation, but salvation. God wants to offer mercy to all who need it. So as Paul comes to this conclusion of thinking about God's calling of Israel, their rejection and and the Gentiles' inclusion and Israel's regrafting in, he's propelled into a majestic doxology in which he assures us that through it all, God will be glorified. He says this, Oh, the depths of the, both the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? 
And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul begins by declaring that God's ways are unsearchable, untraceable. Paul isn't praising the Lord because he found answers to all the questions and solutions to all of our problems. Rather, Paul is, is declaring that God's ways are unsearchable and untraceable. Paul isn't praising the Lord be, because he found the answers. No, he's, he's praising God that, that his dealings with mankind and the nation of Israel are beyond our comprehension. We will never fully understand it in this life. But we can be assured that his knowledge is perfect and his ways are wise. And for that, we can praise him. Next, Paul declares God's greatness by asking three rhetorical questions and reminds us how far above us God's thoughts and ways are. First, it reinforces that he's already said about not being able to fathom the mind of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Secondly, it reminds us that God is so much greater that, that we have no right to give him counsel. Who has been his counsel? You can't say to God, you know, I got a word, word for you, Lord. And the third quote is that we can never be put into, uh, we can never put God in our debt. And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? Sometimes we have the mistaken idea <clears throat> that we can give God so much and do so much for him that he owes us. Well, it just doesn't work that way. It's impossible for us to put God under obligation to us. Nothing we do for God can ever compare what he's done and continues to do for us. He holds all things together. He provides us our breath that we breathe. Now, Paul concludes with a final expression of praise that affirms God's supremacy as the source and sustainer and the goal of all things for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. All things are of him. He's the source. He's the maker. All things are through him. He upholds, he sustains, he rules and directs them, whether they be forces of nature, the energy, the atom, the nation of Israel, the Gentile nations of the world, the supernatural powers, the supernatural realm, anything else, all of it comes under the dominion and power of God. All things are to him. He's the reason for, exist, for, it, for their existence. And ultimately, whether they believe in God or not, they serve his ends. Well, all things will bring immense glory to him forever and ever. Though right now we may not understand how. Well, let me conclude by offering a few points for us to ponder as we move along in our lives and as we apply <clears throat> what we've just learned to our lives. First of all, Paul's focus is on spiritual salvation. Paul's overriding concern is this section, in this section, was to stifle Gentile pride. In our day, as in Paul's, the church is largely a Gentile institution. And unfortunately, our tendency as humans is to prefer people like us and to think of ourselves superior to those who are different from us. We, we have that natural tendency. Coupled with the ideas about Jewish responsibility for the death of Jesus and the idea of replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, 
It has led people to a trajectory uh, that, that, that causes them to think that, that, that the Jews are hostile to God and to his church. And, and so we become hostile. Anti-Semitism continues to be a powerful force of evil in the world. And, and we see the results in, in acts of terrorism against Jewish people in Jewish places of worship in the United States, in Paris, and around the world. Let me say as emphatically as I can, there's no room for such hostility in the church where we have been reconciled, Jew and Gentile, as one. Spiritual family, mishpucha, is the Hebrew word. We need to be ready to welcome Jewish Christians into our worship and to honor them as representatives of the root that is that foundation of which we we are. When Jesus took that cup and, and that bread, it was in the context of Passover. And we should understand that. And, and having Jewish people in the body of Christ helps us to understand Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, and what they mean to us in Christ. And so we need to welcome them into our body. And secondly, I want to remind us that there's only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus. Universalism, that is, just because Israel has this promise in the future for their salvation does not mean that the Jewish people, and for that matter all people, don't need Jesus to be saved. They do. Many people think it's anti-Semitic to insist that Christ is the only means of salvation. But it's the truth. He is the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Paul in no way is trying to suggest that Israel is afforded a special way to be saved apart from Christ. Paul has spent most of Romans describing the importance of the gospel through which salvation is offered to both Jews and Gentiles in Christ. But the heart of the gospel is Jesus and his death on the cross for all. No one, no one can be saved apart from the good news of Jesus. If we believe that Jews have a special way on their own, it'll be difficult to refrain from doing the same for Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and so forth. Many people today have a problem with such pluralism, but God does, and so should we. There's only one way to the Father, no other name. The basis for Israel's national salvation at the end of the days is looking upon Jesus, whom we have pierced. All men must be shared that good news and recognize that the reason he died was for our sin. And finally, I want to remind us the greatness of God. In the end, it's all about God. He's the perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing creator. All things are from him and through him and to him, and he's worthy of all our glory and honor. If we ever think that God has forgotten us or mistreated us or just uh, cast us off, just remember his faithful love. And if we ever think that we've wandered too far from God to repent and to turn, just remember that God's special chosen people have rejected God, but he has never given up on them. A day is coming when they will turn to him. And if you're in a place where you're away from him, come back. He welcomes you with open arms. Let's praise him for his man amazing plan of redemption. And let's bow in humility before him.
calling upon the grace that he richly offers us in Messiah, the love that he gives us in Messiah, and turn to him with thanksgiving and praise. And if you will, would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we thank you and praise you for your wonderful word, your wonderful faithfulness, your faithfulness even to a stiff-necked, rebellious people, my, my kinsmen, my Jewish people. I pray, Father, that you would open their heart and their eyes, that they would recognize their Savior. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters who you have redeemed and called and who gather together to praise your name. And, and, and through the mercy you've given to them, I pray that they would have mercy on my people, praying for them, sending missionaries to them, supporting outreach to them, Lord God, causing them to intercede for the people you love. Thank you for their salvation and, and making them part of your covenant. And thank you for, for what you've done in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.